0: Let me tell you a story. Podcast number one hundred nine. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of never mind. It is a truth universally
1: acknowledged. Christmas.
2: You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat. Step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace up your walking shoes and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors.
0: Hi, this is Steve. Before we get started, we want to thank our guest authors for bearing with our technical difficulties. The Skype connection was not always the best and affected the recording quality, but the stories and advice Jan and Sherry Simmons share regarding trauma survival are well worth the listen.
3: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Several months ago, I had the privilege of editing a beautiful book by a wonderful mother-daughter team. Not only did I enjoy working with Jan and Sherry Simmons, I believe what they've learned and share in their writing as well as in their speaking will impact many, many lives. The book is titled Which Way? one woman's traumatic journey and her daughter's explanation of how to turn pain into power. Thank you, Jen and Sherry, for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
3: I'm very excited to finally have you on Let Me Tell You a Story because both of you have amazing life stories to tell. But before we bombard you with questions, Steve will read your book's back cover blurb to give listeners an idea of what, which way, is all about
0: in which way mother and daughter tell parallel stories about trauma and its impact on the generations that follow jen simmons story is a heart-wrenching account of an orphaned child who suffered brutally at the hands of her mother as well as many others as an adult jen's mind was closed to the horrors of her abuse betrayal and abandonment until the day they all came flooding back to her conscious mind That awareness began a 40-year transformation from a passive victim to resilient warrior. As a young teen, Sherry struggled to make sense of her mother's pain. But as a career mental health therapist, she began to understand her mother's journey and learn how trauma affects the brain. She offers strategies in this book for those suffering from past or present trauma or for those who love someone who is suffering. Both women tell their stories and drive home the fact that the choices we make can lead to self-hatred and resentment, or to a life of courage, healing, and beauty. Which way is an unforgettable story of love and transformation that will resonate with mothers, daughters, trauma survivors, those who love them, and those who've made a career out of helping them heal? Jan, the blurb says you were an orphan
3: child, yet it also says you suffered brutally at the hands of your mother and others. Can you clarify for readers how you were orphaned, yet had parents?
1: I lived with uh, my mother, my dad, and my brother until my dad died when I was three years old. My brother went to live with my paternal grandmother and I stayed back with my mother. And she became an alcoholic and I was abused uh, at her hands and state that we were living in uh, eventually after uh, five or six years eventually took me away from her and put me in an orphanage. I was about eight years old.
0: Sherry, uh, can you talk about why the horrors of abuse, betrayal, and abandonment were hidden from your mother's consciousness for years?
4: Yes, so my my mom spent her early adulthood um, swallowing down, denying, uh, ignoring, pushing away any memories of her her past. Um, and so her memories became repressed and didn't surface again until she got into therapy and sur- started unearthing them. Um, and and learning how to work through them with her therapist.
3: Thank you, Sherry, for that. Jan, how old were you when your childhood memories resurfaced? And what did it feel like to remember what you wanted to forever forget?
1: Yeah, so when, when I had daughters at about the same age that my abuse began, I would get up in the middle of the night, and I would go into their bedroom and sit down on on their their floor and just watch. I just uh, I was in a vigil over the over their beds, waiting for something to happen, waiting for something bad to happen. And these flashbacks or these fears became. Uh, it became such a ritual with me having to uh, go. I couldn't. I, I just couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't rest at night. I had to. I had to be up watching over them so that they um, nothing bad would happen to them. And this went along. Um, so I would say I was about uh, late twenties, maybe early thirties. That the flashbacks became a little more aggressive. They came, up and but I didn't understand them. Uh, I would see things so quickly, and it was such a, it was such a flash that I couldn't really make sense out of it. I just knew they were very tormenting. And then one day, I I saw Sherry walked in the room, and I saw my mother's face. And then I knew that, that I was in trouble. I, it was, my memories came in, uh, in waves a, at that time uh, and, and became a little bit more uh, aggressive or a little more often. And that's when I knew I had to seek uh, some help.
0: And right along with that, Sherry, In what ways were you impacted by your mom's life experiences before and after she reconnected with her past memories?
4: During my childhood, I watched mom uh, dissociate. I would watch her suffer from symptoms of PTSD. At the time, of course, I didn't understand any of that. You know, when we would go to a restaurant and the baby would cry, mom would get, almost have a panic attack. And get pretty hysterical until she found out that the baby was okay or if we were walking along the sidewalk and a a man would be walking towards us she she got real frightened Um, of course as a child I didn't get that and understand it as an adult and a therapist I I now know she she was suffering from PTSD what what became powerful for me after during and after mom went through her recovery and her therapy was um, the strength and resiliency that she had. Um, You know, I had watched her be very passive during my childhood and kind of what we would call a a, a doormat. You know, people would walk all over her. But, boy, watching her through the, the recovery process find her voice again and, and be able to stand up for herself was, was remarkable to get to see. Mm.
3: <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, and I think this would be a great time to hear some excerpts from your book. Jan, would you like to go first?
1: Sure, absolutely. Thank you. This annihilation now defined me, the me who could claim nothing as her own. I was so deeply ashamed of being so unloved, and so unwanted. The people who were supposed to protect me didn't exist. The people who were supposed to love me didn't exist. I was now imprisoned in a place where I had no chance of ever being loved and that realization created a vast hole in my young soul that I had no idea how to fill. Sunday was visiting day. I had been in the orphanage for four days but the time seemed so much longer. I got up early and put on a green blouse I found hanging. On the second row, I grabbed a tattered pair of orange shorts from one of the dressers. These dressers were in the center of the long room, separating the two rows of beds on each side. I couldn't find any shoes that fit, and I had to hurry. I had to get outside and be ready when my mama or someone from my family came to see me. I gladly forfeited shoes for the greater cause, which was to hurry out the door and wait for my visitor. I didn't have time to brush my tangled hair that hadn't seen a comb for days. As all the other little girls headed to the cafeteria for breakfast, I raced for a position on the wall outside the gate. I wanted to locate the best vantage point for seeing each car as it drove in the morning was warm so selecting the shorts and a sleeveless top had been a good choice i reached the wall and grimaced at how far away the top ledge was how would i get up there as i scanned the length of the wall utility began to fill my beam But when I saw several random stones jutting out from the wall just ahead, they were probably decorative, but to me, they were obviously stepping stones. My feet were small enough that they easily fit on the steps and up I went, scaling that wall like a pro. When I reached the top ledge, I stood up and I walked down a short distance so that I was closer to the iron gate, which allowed more visibility to the street and the passing cars. I sat down to begin my wait, naively assuring myself I would not have long. I gazed down at my feet and wished I had found shoes to hide the dirt that covered them. After a while, some of the other children joined me on the ledge, waiting for their own visitors. They chatted and laughed with each other, but I remained focused on each car that passed. Some of the cars slowed down, turned, and entered the iron gate. Inside the wall, I saw a boy stop playing ball, grin, and run to one of the incoming cars as fast as his little legs would go. His gaze locked on the man and woman in the front seat. When the car parked, the woman jumped out first, scooped him up, and spun him around like a top. The boy giggled and giggled. I returned my focus to the street. The bell that signaled time for all the children to stop playing and form a line in front of the cafeteria for lunch rang. I remained on my perch. No way was I going to leave and miss my visitor. If I did, I'd have to wait a whole week for visitation to come around again, and that sounded like a lifetime. I was too anxious to see someone I knew, especially my mother. I dreamed of sitting beside her as she wrapped her arms around me and kissed the top of my head because I didn't want to miss that moment. I chose to not leave my post. The sun reached high enough in the sky that the trees no longer provided shade, yet I refused to budge. I was thirsty and tired, but I still wouldn't climb down. At some point in the afternoon, I heard a different bell ring out. I hadn't heard this one before. I learned that this was the signal for visitors to say their goodbyes, give their hugs and kisses, and leave until the next week. No, I can't come down. My visitor hasn't come, no, stop, don't lock the gate, please, they aren't here yet. Month after month, I climbed that wall each Sunday, waiting and longing to see a familiar face. I soon learned which children matched which car that came and went every week as the children ran to greet their families. I tried to imagine what it felt like to be held in love, even if only for a few hours on a Sunday. Week after week, I climbed down off that wall and trudged back to my dorm to cry in the pillow of whatever bed I was assigned to that night. Finally, I accepted the utility of my vigil, and I stopped, never to return to that wall again. My life in the orphanage consisted of profound feelings of abandonment. I had no interest in anything. I made no friends. I spoke only when spoken to by a teacher or staff member. When I did speak, the words didn't come out right. I stuttered and was ridiculed by the other children. I already wet the bed every night, and now I stuttered. In the beginning, the matron had been patient with my wet sheets each morning. I suppose because she thought the problem would pass once I settled in. Of course it didn't, and she soon lost patience with my soiled bedding. My punishment was to wash the linens each morning before school in the bathroom shower, wring them out as best I could, and hang them outside for all the other kids to see. We all knew what sheets hanging on the line outside the dorms meant. I wasn't the only child who wet the bed. How ludicrous for the staff to think shaming us would be the cure for a behavior we had no control over in the first place. What child chooses to wet the bed?
3: (laughs) Well. it's it's so beautifully written but what what a sad story
0: it is i, I can't imagine I, I i just can't imagine how emotionally uh, you know, draining i that's not even the word to wait time after time and have them never show up anybody ever show up
1: uh it it was it was agonizing and it just it felt it never got easier, uh, you know. It never got uh, to to a point that I felt like, well, I, you know, I probably won't. I went up that wall every Sunday, believing that someone would come that day. Um, finally, I couldn't take the the emotional pain anymore, and I and I just quit going. I, I just couldn't do it
3: anymore, I was broken. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that, a very painful part of your history. Yes. And um, now, Sherry, I'd like to hear from you.
4: Okay. I have a crooked witch finger. About three years ago, one of my fingers suddenly decided to veer off to the left just above my first joint. My one straight finger now looks as if it's signaling to every person in the world that they need to take sharp left. Doctors confirmed my fear that I had the beginning of arthritis that will soon take over all of my fingers and mangle them into a pile of twisted digits. At the age of 48, I have a healthy self-esteem and self-concept. I know who I am, and more importantly, I like who I am. I've come to accept my flaws and appreciate my deficits. However, I was speaking to a group of therapists recently and noticed that a couple people in the front row were looking at my crooked finger. I could see their eyes follow my hand instead of looking me in the eyes. Even as I was speaking, I was acutely aware of the heat that began to rise in my cheeks and of how embarrassed I felt. I caught myself folding my finger inward and enclosing it in my bald fist. I felt ashamed. Shame. A simple word, yet it carries so much meaning. Dozens of books have been written on this topic. Shame is at the core of trauma work. I have found that people can heal rather quickly from the physical atrocities of their past, but often have a hard time healing from the shame that it evokes. Shame is the cloud of invisible smoke that we breathe in after we experience physical or sexual abuse, rejection or abandonment, disparaging remarks, or even a demeaning look. Shame is a feeling that takes residence and cleans on for dear life, after a beating, after being bullied, after receiving a diagnosis of depression, after standing in an elevator and watching a beautiful woman dripping in jewels walk in and eye our scuffed shoes. Shame can take over and twist these events into a grotesque, foul liquid. It will soak into every fiber of our being and affect how we navigate our world. Shame interprets who we are at our core and spits out a verdict that usually sounds something like this. You are ugly. You have no value. Hide this part of yourself because it's not acceptable. You're too fat and unlovable to ever find someone who will appreciate you for who you are. You are not worth anyone's time. The world doesn't understand shame very well and often confuses it with regret. Regret says something is wrong with my behavior or my decision. Shame says something is wrong with me. Healing from shame is hard because it requires us to look deep within ourselves and travel to our subconscious beliefs. Shame beliefs are hardwired into our brains. Our rational minds know they're incorrect But the inner parts of our souls not only believe the shame, but cling to it as a rock-solid, unshakable truth. Shame is what makes us turn red with embarrassment when we're verbally attacked. It's what makes us throw away the colorful shirt we just bought after someone says, that shirt reminds me of something my grandma would wear. Shame leads us to walk out of the gym in tears after someone tells us we've put on a few pounds. It causes us to walk through life thinking we don't deserve to be paid better or to be given immeasurable love or to experience happiness. Dealing with our feelings of unworthiness is the most difficult but the most vital aspect of healing. My mom eventually tackled the demon of shame, but overcoming it required years of personal introspection and therapy. To confront our shame means we have to challenge, question and argue with the deep-seated messages and long-held beliefs that we're not worthy, we're not good enough, we're valuable, we're lovely and perfect just the way we are. We must rise against those beliefs, stare them down and stand tall as we tell them we are done. We must rip the leeches of shame from our souls and flush them down the toilet. Purging ourselves of in ingrained beliefs Is painful because they've become so much a part of us. Our minds oftentimes don't know what to do when we get rid of what has become so solidified. People who do shame work often report feeling somewhat lost for a period of time. Some clients have stated that they've lost their identity. Feeling shameful about themselves is easier than the emptiness of not knowing who they are. But when we start to replace shameful thoughts with truth about who we are, we we begin to blossom. If you're someone who struggles with shame, the hard work will be to examine your deeply held beliefs about yourself. The exercise in the book will give you a guide for writing down the messages, both verbal and nonverbal, that you've received in your life. At some point in your healing journey, we'll need to look at how you chose to interpret those messages then the work of telling those beliefs to take a hike will begin. You can do this in your own unique way. How we deal with relationships is largely influenced by the messages we received about ourselves, either spoken or unspoken, as we developed into adults. An understanding of the beliefs we hold about ourselves as a result of those messages is vital. If we don't heal from damaging messages in our lives, They tend to creep into our relationships with our significant others, our children, our coworkers, our friends, and ourselves. To be the healthiest version of ourselves, we must go back in time, discover the messages we're given about who we are, acknowledge the impact they had, and replace those that no longer work for us. When I was first married, I went to lunch with my husband. I was so happy to be a new bride and to say that I was having lunch with my husband. I met him at work and and we walked to a nearby restaurant. On the way back, I was giddy with excitement and reached over and grabbed his hand. He immediately and dramatically pushed my hand away saying, don't ever do that again in public. That is when I heard her, that familiar voice that I'd come to loathe. She said, ha, you thought you were lovable. You thought you'd found someone who'd be proud to walk down the street with you. You foolish girl, you will never be good enough for that. No one will ever love you like that and want you because you're just simply not good enough. Time and work were required to convince that voice to go away. But one day it did. Several years after my divorce, I took a day off from work. I was a single mom working a highly demanding job at a psych hospital and I felt like I was losing my mind. I'd been faced with some challenging decisions on the job and was visited daily by my old pal, Shane, who picked up every morning right where she left off each night. You are so worthless. Why would you think you could run a program for teenagers, be a supervisor and a good mother all at the same time? I was sick at the sound of her voice. I was even sicker of my own willingness to hang on to every word and incorporate it as truth. I sent my son off to school, told my staff I was taking a day off, and drove up the mountains where I pulled over by a river and wrote a letter. It started like this. Dear Shane, I am done with you and your hopeless, destructive words for me. I see myself believing what you say and living my life according to your perceptions of me. You tell me I'm worthless, and I believe it. In fact, I am ineffective as a director, and I don't lead my employees well because I've taken in your rise as truth. I'm not the mother I know I can be because I've let you convince me that, I, that I'm not. I have no choice. I have to murder you, silence you and forbid you to occupy space in my mind. I sent this letter floating down the river in an old Bud Light bottle. There have been many times when Shane sneaks back. I can hear her start with her familiar barrage of insults. I can almost picture her standing outside my door, hunched over in the cold, pleading to come in. Although I can still and hear her at times, I do not open the door. Instead... I turn the other direction and walk away. On days where I'm feeling sassy I point my crooked finger at her and tell her to get off my front porch. (laughs)
3: Love that ending. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool and some really great insights and wisdom there that I'm sure will be helpful for our listeners. Uh, We have one last question and this one is for Jan. Your story has many deeply painful aspects to it, including your healing process, which has often been one step forward, two steps backward, maybe even three or four steps backward. I know you were discouraged, even to the point of suicide, and I know you felt terribly alone at times. What can you tell a listener who's in a similar tough situation or state of mind?
1: I, I have been uh, suicidal And um, thank goodness I was brought out of that. But I think what I would like for the listeners to understand is that if they can just hang on, tomorrow will be a better day. Tomorrow will. they can turn a corner. I feel like, you know, in my moments of wanting to end my life, I didn't want to, I didn't want to die, I just wanted out of the pain, and I didn't feel like I had any other way, but if, if they'll just hang on, they can, they will see light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, many times that light is them, it, you know, we, we shine the brightest so I guess I just want them to not give up, not to give up hope.
0: Okay, hey, sounds great. That, that reminds me of the quote, uh, the stars shine brightest on the darkest night. Anything you'd like to add, Sherry?
4: Oh, I just want to encourage people to go through the process of looking at their past and and healing from it you know we all have we we called this we titled this book which way because we all have a choice to make about which path we're going to to walk down in life and and oftentimes the path that it is the hardest and the most unfamiliar is the healthiest for us but but when we make that decision to follow that path our whole entire life changes. And frankly, the generations that follow uh, impact in a positive way as well.
3: Hmm. Thanks. You can contact Sherry and Jan through Sherry's website, SherrySimmons.com, which is S-H-A-R-I-S-I-M-M-O-N-S.com. And where else can listeners connect with you, Sherry? Like Facebook or email
4: uh, yes I, I do have a, a Facebook a, a account and then uh, my email is Sherry Simmons Speaks at gmail.com so Sherry Simmons Speaks, gmail.com for the website
3: okay great well thanks so much for being with us it's truly a pleasure and an yes, honor
0: it is.
4: Thank, thank you so much. You know, our book is available on Amazon. We um, have appreciated getting to talk about it tonight and are grateful for both
3: of you. And yes, we did want to say <laughs> that the book is available in print and in ebook format. Is that right? Correct. Okay, good. Thank you for being with us. Yes. And we thank our listeners also.
0: Until next time, happy reading.
2: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.